0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Science is back, baby.
1: This Bendrovsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away.
0: Bonus time in the Ben Draftski Show as I speak. It's Friday, November 13th, 2020. Oh, Friday, November 13th. Woo! Anyway, it's a podcast. You sound effects are our second to none in the Ben Draftski Show. Uh, you can be listening to this anytime because uh, it's a podcast. I'm now tell you what's uh, the news of the day. Uh, to give you a sense of what was going on in the world uh, as I do this interview. Wrong again. This is a headline in the New York Times. This, this headline is apropos. To the conversation we're about to have. Wrong again. How polls misread 2020 voters. Yeah, pollsters are sort of trying to figure it all out. Uh, they were off one more time. Anyway, without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and then we'll take it away. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jason Lee. I'm a political consultant uh, based out of Chicago, originally from Houston, Texas. Uh, I spent my career working uh, for organized labor. i worked for Apps me. uh I've worked for the Chicago Teachers Union, um, voted for um, different labor coalitions, uh, targeting all kinds of voters, African-American voters, uh, advised on digital media strategy. Um, I was the um, uh, formerly the uh, political director for United Working Families. Uh, I was deputy campaign manager for Tony Preckwinkle, um, And I uh, recently have been doing a lot of uh, data and digital consulting for campaigns around the country, including uh, one of the fair tax ballot committees, um, as well as a couple of frontline congressional races, uh, some coordinated uh, campaigns down in Texas. Uh, so it's been a pretty... Oh, and I was also... Um, Uh, worked with uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign uh, consulted for them when they uh, during the primary so Uh, a very
0: um, for a young man uh Deep background, a lot of experience, uh, Jason Lee, and I, I've been bugging him to come on the show for a while. And he was like, man, I'm in the middle of a campaign. I'll come on. I'll come on. And now uh, here we are. He's on the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, all right, Jason. Got so much to talk about. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the themes uh, that we've been uh, really diving into is where do we go from here as yeah. progressives, Democrats. But before I get to that, we'll hold off on that a little bit. Uh, let's start with what I uh or began with and just I just right before our interview, I was reading this article in the New York Times where all these pollsters are trying to figure out what went wrong. Now you've been in this business for a while, uh, you've been dealing with polls and pollsters for a long time. Were you as uh, uh, surprised by the election results as I was? I expected based on the polls, for instance, uh, that Joe Biden would would probably win Florida or be more competitive. I was very disappointed on election night. Uh, did you have a different reaction? Were you more skeptical about the polls coming out, uh, coming in election day?
1: Man, um, you know, I, I, I'll i be honest with you. I, you know, I've, I was skeptical at the margins. Um, I was skeptical at the, at the, at the gap, you know, at, particularly at the national level. You know, I think one of the things that's like a really difficult thing for people to to really think about is, you know, the combination of margin of error plus polling error, right? So, you know, we usually don't even pay attention to margin of error, particularly as polls get discussed conventionally, but the margin of error is usually anywhere from four to five to 3%, right? And that literally, that kind of means that you have like a 95%, um, you know, depending on which interval you use, uh, uh, you know, belief that the poll could be within that range. Right. So if I have a margin of error of 4% and the poll and the final numbers are 4% different than what my poll said, that's basically accurate. I mean, that's basically right. I mean, if I'm a pollster, I'm saying check, you know, I got that right. And so say you have a 4% swing within the margin of error and then another 3% polling error, which we don't really think is that big. Well, now you're talking about a seven point swing. Right. And that could take you from a win to a loss, from a blowout to a, to a, for a nail biter. Um, and I think if you kind of understand that about polling, you're a little bit less shocked uh, by kind of these outcomes. But I know from my friends in the polling industry that, you know, they're still not satisfied with what happened here because they saw some structural things that they were trying to fix from 2016 that they still haven't quite calibrated around. So I definitely think that industry is going to have to do some work. But I think we also know that Trump is a really hard guy to poll. He brings out a type of voter that polling doesn't seem really good at capturing.
0: Talk about that. Structural deficiencies in polling and the inability to capture uh, the Trump voter. Why is this the case?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think anyone knows for sure yet. I mean, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that there's always like there's always it's really hard. To uh, tease out bias um, within demographics, you know, pollsters can really do a good job of putting together demographically representative samples, you know, age, race, geography. Uh, But ideological, um, if there are correlations, it's very difficult for them to tease out. So if there's something about Trump voters that, 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 that makes them skeptical of polling, that makes them not want to talk to pollsters, that makes them not want to participate in these kind of surveys, because they're skeptical of these kind of institutions or they're skeptical of the deep state and they're kind of conspiratorial, That means that the white working class or the low propensity Republicans that you get are not um, are not uh, representative of the entire landscape because there's a bias in which one of that which members of that demographic are willing to do a poll. Uh, And I think that's the structural thing that may be happening is that there's something about some of these lower propensity Trump voters that just makes them really difficult to engage uh, via polling. They may have some kind of natural bias against it. And so even when you think you're talking to enough, quote, white non-college voters or whatever we think about his core bases, you're still not getting the ones that are more likely to support him.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a that's a different explanation. It's a, I think you're on target with, right there with your explanation than the conventional uh, explanation, the, quote, unquote, shy Trump voters, the poll, the people who uh, lie to pollsters because they don't want to acknowledge uh that they're for actually going to vote for Donald Trump. I have always felt that that was an exaggeration. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I've read that a bunch of times. Every time I read it, there's some sentence that says we haven't been able to corroborate that. We haven't been able to find that when we look at all the ways we think that would show up. It doesn't show up. Right. So you would expect it to show up more in, um, you know, areas where supporting Trump may be more culturally, um, uh, you know, look down upon, or, 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 or uh, you know, may 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 come at a greater cost, but they don't really see a difference between the amount of support uh, that's or or the polling misses and between those two different types of areas. So, I tend not to subscribe to that, but you know, I understand the phenomenon because it happens. It happens with like voter contact, right? Like it's like. It's like when you're doing voter contact and you're trying to ID voters for your candidate, and you get this huge undecided. I'm always telling my people, like, yeah, they're against us. They're, <laughs> you know, like yeah. most of those people are against us. They just don't want to tell you because people don't like conflict." But yeah, huge percentage of those people are against us. Yeah,
0: that's a. Uh, <laughs> if they say they're undecided, just check it negative.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, by yeah, the way, I think it's late.
0: Yeah. I, I I I should amend what I said. Uh, I used to believe the shy uh, Trump voter. Notion that people are ashamed of Trump. I still believe it's a, sort of a phenomenon, but after watching four years of Trump in action, watching rallies, watching MAGA wearing the red hat with pride, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, pounding their chest I'm like, I don't see any shyness on the part of a Trump voter. They're like pretty out there about supporting Donald Trump. That's why I'm saying yeah. it. Yeah. I've come around. What about this other phenomenon uh, that I've uh, been thinking about for a long time? Black voters who lie uh, to pollsters do you and say things like they're for Trump, and then I don't see the evidence of that when the votes are ca- are counted. Um, I always feel as though the uh, poll numbers for Trump his support in the, among black voters is exaggerated in contrast to the actual vote. Do you think there's a line that goes on by black voters uh, to pollsters?
1: You know, I, I'll first start by saying I also I thought a lot of the coverage leading up to the election about particularly black men, you know, shifting towards Trump was like dramatically overblown and exaggerated and and hyperbolized um, in terms of the, the polling. I mean, I think you might see a similar situation where black male voters or black voters who are inclined to say they support Trump are also less inclined to vote in general Trump supporter in my head. Yeah. And in my head, like I'm also very skeptical that that person turns out, you know? Um, So for each one of those people or for each 10 of those people, like I'm skeptical that, that more than half turn out because they also tend to be like pretty disengaged with politics in general and pretty skeptical of the process, which allows them to kind of imagine that, you know, Trump is, as good or even better than some of the folks that are in there now, particularly folks who represent their communities, they kind of have this negative um, attitude towards the status quo um, that doesn't tend to lead to a lot of civic engagement. Um, Uh, Yeah, go ahead. uh, But, but yeah, so, so, you know, my, my only thing that I've seen that I've experienced firsthand through polling is that, um, You know, I think also, you know, there's some older African-Americans who I think have a a hesitancy and a retinence to share who they're voting for in general. So sometimes you'll get a higher undecided number with them than you would normally get because they just, you know, voting for them is still something that is something to be protected and something that people might be trying to rip away. So you need to be very careful with how you communicate that and who you're voting for and everything. So I've seen that.
0: I'm with you 100 percent on both points. And that, uh, that I first saw this in 2004, uh, where a, a, 20% of black voters, according to polls, were for George W. Bush. I just like that is so not true. And I've been watching it year after year after year. It's a mini obsession of mine. And I agree with you. Uh, a lot of these voters who say that for Trump don't vote at all. All right. Now, let's get to the people who did vote for Trump. And as you said, you pointed out, uh, you generally work uh, for progressive candidates, uh, pro- progressive Democrats, um, 48%, Jason, they watched four years of Donald Trump and they wanted more. How do you deal with that?
1: Man, that's a tough question. I mean, I, you know, it's like political coalitions are complicated, right? I mean, a lot of people show up to the dance for different reasons, right? So 48% of people voting for Trump is 48% of people who found their way to Trump through all different kind of angles. Um, And so it's hard to, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, 48% of people voted for that. But it could have been that 10% of those people were voting against something else. And Trump just happened to be the only person on the other side. They just thought the other thing was worse. You know, so I think you got to really go in and kind of do the analysis after the fact and try to tease out the different kind of motivations behind that 48% coalition uh, and which aspects of that coalition you might have something for. I, I think there are parts of it that you'll never have anything for at least not, not from the standpoint of progressive politics because they're motivated by racial resentment or they're motivated by some other thing that you're never really gonna be able to get around in their lifetime, not a political movement. Maybe a social movement could, uh, but a political movement won't be able to cut through some of those ideological or, or identity-based politics. But there may be others who you know, were looking for more populism and they didn't hear from Joe Biden because they th- or, or they didn't hear from Democrats because it was so much about we're not Trump um, and maybe there's some message, an uh, economic uh, health care message that can bring some of them if it's more explicit. I'm not one of those people who likes to make kind of sweeping judgments, assessments, because I, my, my experience in politics is that it's usually yes and uh, there's usually so many different reasons uh, why voters do what they do and, and, and so many different ways to approach it.
0: When you look back at the four years of resistance yeah. that have come from the Democratic Party, Uh, against donald trump and that includes the impeachment the women's march i'm just in my mind's eye i could just think uh the 2018 midterm elections the fight over health care is there any one of those that stood out in your mind as a model of what democrats uh, should do in the future or and and to the same point a model of what they should never do again
1: so I was like, and obviously I should—I don't know. I mean, I, I feel weird saying this because i i don't know what my legitimacy saying this is. But I remember early on because I worked on the 2016 election. I was—I was with uh, AFSCME uh, Interna- <laughs> International, um, which is a you know big union. But I was working out of D.C. and they deployed staff all over the country to help uh, Hillary win. So I was in Ohio. I was actually in responsible for uh, half of Ohio. Uh, for one of the largest uh, super PACs that we were part of. So I had a lot of experience uh, talking to voters and engaging folks during 16 in a battleground state, or at least what we thought was a battleground state at that time. And, you know, again, we talked to thousands and thousands of people, and it was very complicated, the, the decisions and choices folks made. Um, but when I got back to DC, I was around, you know, it was like, it was like a funeral, right? Everybody I was around, all liberals, labor folks, progressive folks were just in mourning and, and, and really angry and upset. And I totally got it. Right. But I thought there were so many things that like, I realized that this bubble that we were in this cocoon, this progressive bubble that we were in, in DC really had hampered us. Like we really didn't see a lot of what was happening on the ground. A lot of the perspectives we thought our ideology and our worldview had won, in ways in which it had not, where it was very much still contestable. Um, And I kind of likened Trump to the, you know, Dorito taco, right? Whereas, um, you know, if you were in New York or LA or whatever, and you saw the commercial for the Dorito taco, you're like, this is disgusting. Like, who's going to eat this? And then the rest of America, it was like selling out. It was like the (laughs) biggest food thing ever. They couldn't, they were like, this is what I've been waiting for. And I thought that Trump to me was the Dorito taco, right? All the way down to being orange. So, um, I just thought there needed to be a lot more humility. Um, and so when I saw the Women's March, to me, there was something that struck me as wrong about that because, again, you know, we were coming off an election where 53, well, we thought 53%, maybe 47%, percent—would a plurality of white women, for example, had voted for Donald Trump. And it's like, if you have something called the Women's March that is explicitly anti-Trump, what are you saying to the women who did vote for him? Mm. There's got to be, like, what... Are they not women because they voted for Trump? I mean, if, if this group of people is not willing or able to talk to those people, who can? So I don't know. That was just like a thing that always kind of struck me is like, if we're going to write people off of like out of history or like out of our whole identity, you know, based on supporting Trump, like that's fine. But then we just need to figure out how to grow within ourselves. We're not going to be able to ever build a bridge across. And that's fine. I mean, that's fine if that's the way we go. We just need to be clear on what kind of message that kind of stuff sends. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think that Donald Trump's people uh, from the get go and were they uh, never backed down from this, uh, identified who their supporters were and who their enemies were. And they really never made an attempt to win over their enemies. I mean, think about it. Like a guy like me would be their enemy. And uh, a guy like you would be their enemy. And they never made any attempt. They may have made more of an attempt to win uh, you over. I I think just as like a, uh, uh, just as like a notion of like a type, a stock, a, you know, a younger black voter. I guess they thought like Kanye West was their attempt to win you over. But they never made any attempt to win like an old lefty over. Uh, and so yeah. that worked for them. I guess the Women's March was a Democratic subversion of that, like. We know who our supporters are. We're going to go to them, and that's all we care about at the moment. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, yeah, to be fair, I mean, I think there was definitely uh, a lot that came out of that energy. Uh, We saw women get involved in the electoral process on the Democratic side in numbers um, uh, like they never had um, before in 2018, Um, and we saw a lot of people ushered into office, a lot of activism uh, that we hadn't seen. But if you look at 2020, uh, 2020 was the year of the Republican woman yeah. uh, and 20 year and, 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 and um, you know, it looks like we're going to see the same or even more white women vote for Trump this time uh, than last time. Obviously, Biden was still able to win. Um, but it, it's just interesting how, like, you know, again, like maybe you're right, that 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 any kind of cross reach or outreach is pointless at this point in American politics. And so we just forget about it. But it's just a, that's the reality of what happened.
0: Well, I, I I hope I'm not uh, that pessimistic uh, to think that uh, there is no hope whatsoever. But it sure seems pretty hopeless right now. And I'm trying. Maybe you can help me out of here. Like, when what issues do you think uh, a Democrat could champion, or what approach could a Democrat champion uh, going forward to get people who haven't voted Democratic to vote a Democratic?
1: Are these people who don't vote or are these people who vote Republican?
0: Wow. Great question. Um, I don't know which one is harder. Uh, Let's start with the people who don't vote. Let's go with them first.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that like that kind of stuff takes a lot of effort because you can't to me, like, People are dealing with, people are, people don't, people aren't invested in the political system. They don't believe that politics is relevant to their lives. They don't believe it delivers for them. And they don't have a lot of trust that what people say happens because people have heard, you know, to the extent that they're paying attention and some non-voters actually pay attention. You know, I think that's one misnomer that a non-voter is is necessarily ill-informed or not paying attention. They're just usually not civically engaged, right? Even though they may follow kind of what's going on. Uh, and so they may have heard promises before they may have heard, uh, you know, us talking about issues before some of those issues may even happen. You know, we, you know, we, we've progressives and liberals have have engineered, um, you know, minimum wage increases. Uh, we've engineered expansions of Medicaid, uh, and healthcare, you know, these are things that do have tangible, uh, 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 benefits to people, but it's still not resonating in the way that it would need to for that alone to be the motivator, right? Like their lives aren't fundamentally changing. Like they still live in the same neighborhood. They got mostly the same problems, same struggles. Right. Um, And so I think it's just about trying, we got to get with people and really kind of work with them and get them to kind of think about, what this process is all about right and it's not magic it doesn't you know it's not a slot it's not a, it's not a light switch i don't think we actually do ourselves favors when we try to oversell the impact of any given policy and i know like a lot of progressives that's like not how they would frame it at all it's like we got to talk about medicare for all if we talk <laughs> i don't like i don't subscribe to that at all right like i just i don't i mean medicare for all might as well be another language because it's like yeah okay but like why would they give us that right it's like we we don't we have a trust deficit that we have to acknowledge. Like, it's not like we have a great record of instituting socialism in the United States, right? So like, um, if we, the bigger the promises we make is not always gonna be the biggest thing that motivate, I mean, the most motivating factor for folks. Uh, It may be just kind of working with them day in and day out and kind of slowly trying to get them invested in some kind of democratic civic praxis. Uh, That helps them have a stake and kind of what happens Um, knowing and know like the rest of us that like, you know, we vote and we keep fighting and we, you know, I mean, it's, it's a process. It's not magic. You know, we got to help people embrace that, realize that and see that process as being worth it. Uh,
0: Yeah, no, I, um, There's a a great deal of skepticism, to put it mildly, about what Democrats promise. And we're going to get to the fair tax. I'm sticking nationally. But uh, one of my guests on the show, uh, Monroe Anderson, who's been around uh, uh, politics for a long time uh, in Chicago and Illinois, uh, Jason said he was not surprised that the fair tax uh, was defeated in Illinois because folks his age and this is way before your time. Remember when uh, politicians in Illinois uh, said that the lottery was going to fund education. And Jason, yeah. if you do any polling of older voters, you will probably come up against older voters, people of 55 and older who will say like that was one, what a defining moment in their disbelief and everything that would come after uh in terms of what Illinois politicians do, and as opposed to what they say, the lottery did not solve the state's uh, educational financial problems. It didn't even really, it's just a, it's as though it didn't even exist. And there's just this fundamental disbelief, Monroe was pointing out, that they lied about the lottery, they're lying about this, you can't believe a politician. And I think the Democrats suffer from all that to a certain degree here in the state of Illinois, and nationwide.
1: Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I remember, I remember during the course of it, um, New York, uh, the Tribune did this series where they, I can't remember. I think it was an op-ed series or it was something, but they basically went through every kind of thing like you're talking about mm-hmm. where somebody said like, this is the answer. Like, this is how we're going to solve this kind of fiscal thing. And of course, like none of it, was none of it did and so it was like when i read that i was like oh my god like that's when i first really got nervous because i was like their their message their fundamental point is like almost unassailable right like if you say you can't trust this of course this isn't going to solve any problems like we don't that's not something we could ever say is wrong right it's just you can't you can make a different argument try to point people in different directions but if you're just like, look, you can't trust Springfield to solve any problems. Look at this. Like <laughs> that, when I read that, I was like, oh, that's an argument that we have no answer for. Yeah,
0: I know. So it's not...
1: the money behind that. Like, and then when I started seeing the ads, like, I think me and you had a conversation. I was like, I thought their messaging was good because I was just like, you got regular people cutting to the very core of the weakness of anything that Springfield would ever try to do yeah. as it relates to money. Yeah.
0: And, and, and now we're in a fair tax conversation. I remember the conversation with you. I remember where I was when we had the conversation. I was literally walking down the street uh, really frustrated because yeah. I, I understand I'm old enough. I, I understand the disbelief and cynicism that people have, but to see it exploited by billionaires in order to protect uh, even, you know, their fortunes from taxation was really as cynical as they come. Uh, adjacent. So yeah, it was really, I understood why it was effective. It was still very difficult for me uh, to accept and tolerate. Uh, But all right, before we go to to fair tax, let me just go back to national. We want to, I I let us, uh, let us astray there for a moment. A debate that's been happening. We've been talking a lot about on the show and I talk about in terms of factions and I personify these factions with uh, AOC uh, and Connor Lamb. They're, uh, they yeah. entered Congress at the same time, two thousand and eighteen. He's a moderate from uh, Pennsylvania, and she, of course, is a um, a Bernie Sanders Democrat uh, from New York City. And uh, she says that the Democrats did not push hard enough on issues that would win over uh, working class voters. Uh, and he says that the Democrats uh, undercut their efforts in areas like his and made it difficult for incumbents like him because they were too leftist. And so they're like, they're already at the odds of each other. How do you view this, this debate between AOC and Conor Lamb? What's your take on it?
1: I think it's really unhelpful and counterproductive. Um, You know, I was reading an article today in um, Politico where they had, it was about Alyssa Slotkin, who's another one of these kind of moderates excuse me <clears throat> from michigan mm-hmm. uh, who won her race by four points and there was a lot of stuff in that article that i like totally disagreed with her position on because she was saying some stuff around some weird stuff but one thing that she said that i think to me is just the crux of it is she's like i'm you know don't if you're from new york or california you know don't tell me um how to represent my district and i won't tell you how to represent yours and i think that's exactly right um connor lamb doesn't Know what AOC has to do to get reelected in her district, uh, and what she needs to say to in order to kind of continue to to grow her broader coalition, right? Because she has a national coalition that contributes to her fundraising, her PACs. Like she's got a political project, and and AOC doesn't know what it takes to win Connor Lamb's district. And when AOC talks about like look, you know, it was embarrassing when she was like looking. She's like poking around the internet, trying to see what different people spend on digital and making inferences. Look, I'm, I'm a digital consultant, and I would benefit greatly from um, you know people thinking AOC is 100 percent right and now turning around and spending all their money on digital next cycle. But the reality is that's just like the wrong way to think about it. You can't just look at numbers in a random race and say their strategy was wrong because digital isn't a catch-all solution for every district. Um, there are different strategies. There are different ways you have to use it. There are different platforms. So I thought a lot of what AOC was doing was just like super unhelpful um, and just not accurate and not going to persuade anybody. But I also think it's ridiculous for people to talk about what AOC should or shouldn't be, what policy she should or shouldn't be championing. You got to win your own race, no matter what else anyone is saying, win your own race. Like if, 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 AOC saying that's a problem, if I'm, if I'm whoever's consultant, I'm like, okay, we're going to run against AOC then we're going to run ads saying that we're against AOC if we have to, like whatever we have to do in our district to get ourselves across the line, we'll do it. We're not going to blame anybody else. They don't owe us that.
0: Yeah. I'm with you a hundred percent on that one. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but I, I, I do have, I do have worries that um, the opposition that moderate Democrats face this time around does not bode well to put it mildly for like the kind of pop uh, progressive policies that I'd like to see Joe Biden pursue, because I think the takeaway that people have will be that these are exceedingly unpopular. So, so how do you, uh, what w- what kind of theories do you have as to why, like, for instance, Lauren Underwood barely eked out a victory uh, over uh, Jim Oberweiss this time as opposed to when she ran in 2018. It was a little more of a comfortable uh, win for her or why other uh, Democrats did so poorly, underperformed in Senate races or congressional races. What do you think is going on
1: here? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's not super complicated, right? I mean, I think again like all of us there was a trump wave that most of our polling missed and it only takes a few percentage points of that miss to really put a lot of folks in jeopardy based on where they thought they were Mm -hmm. and you know i don't have enough i didn't see the polling for like all these races i saw for a couple of them you know the thing is like you can it's easy to condemn polling after the fact, right? But like if you have 50 races, right, and, and, and 41, you know, 40 people won their races, those 40 people who won their races were also listening to polling, right? It's not like you got people who listened to polling and completely screwed it and then people who didn't and that's why they won. Like everyone was listening to polling. It's just some people's stuff like ended up resulting in a victory and some people's stuff didn't get them across the line. It doesn't mean it was, it was, it was wrong per se. It just wasn't enough. Yeah. And so I think when you have that Trump wave that comes out, and then you have enough independent or uh, or you know Republican leaning independents who say, "Look, I can vote for my Republican for Senate and Congress, and I'll punish Trump by voting for Biden." In eighteen, the only way to punish Trump if you were independently, I mean, a Republican leaning independent who didn't like the way Trump is, is to vote against whatever Republican was in front of you. That was the way you punished Trump for you know, his statements and his crudeness and it's all that. Now these folks have the ability to punish him directly and they didn't have to punish their down ballot Republicans. And so you add that to the Trump wave of low propensity R's that our polling didn't capture. And now a lot of people are in jeopardy in districts that were already borderline that were already 50, 50 or lean R. So, you know, it, it happens, you know, I mean, there's going to be a lot of idea, you know, analysis, we'll get, we'll dig into the numbers more. People do some great work on that. We'll We'll dig down. Um, But I think in hindsight, you know, 20 like Trump is Trump is actually the perfect guy for for down ballot Republicans because he can bring out voters that will vote for them that they can't bring out themselves and they won't necessarily suffer from all of the liabilities he has amongst Republican leaning independents as long as they're more respectable than he is. So
0: uh, having said that, uh, it makes you think, what do you think the Trump factor will be in Georgia? We have two uh, Senate races that will decide the balance of the Senate.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it depends how Trump thinks about it, but knowing him, I mean, Trump is kind of a, he's like, he kind of showed he's, I mean, he's been like this. He's a political warrior, you know I mean? Whatever, hate him, you know, obviously disagree with everything he stands for, but just from a political standpoint, like he fights, right? Like when, when, when he was down 10, this man was going two, three states a day, mm-hmm. rallies, thousands of people. Yes, ill-advised from a COVID standpoint of COVID. But I know so many candidates who would have basically folded. They would have quit. They would have done just enough to save face. But why do all that, right? You're going to lose. This is embarrassing. This stuff is hard. So if Trump can get it in his mind that somehow winning these two seats in Georgia will be a capstone on a legacy, right? Assuming he accepts the defeat of the White House and he goes to Georgia and kind of makes this his kind of like farewell, kind of let's you know, let's show who we are. Yeah, I think it's a problem. I think that's why the two Republican Senate candidates in Georgia are really towing this line about the election being stolen, because right now they've got an audience of one, and that's Donald Trump. Uh, And if Donald Trump feels good about those two candidates and that they stood by him and he goes down there, um, you know, he's a formidable guy uh, to deal with down there because he can bring people out that no one else in the Republican Party can
0: And uh, will his presence uh, also bring out Democrat voters or the Democrats? I don't
1: think in the same way because he's, he's out. You know, I I don't think that, I don't think that he can motivate, I don't think he can motivate the other side in the same way he did in the general, just by being there, because there was such a big exhale. I think the biggest problem for Democrats had is that there was so much celebration and exuberance around defeating Trump. Also the way that Georgia finally went blue, that a lot of voters are like, I'm done. And, Trying to get those voters like, back into the fold of why they need to do this thing and why this special election's really important, right? Usually when you have special elections or runoffs after, one, after you know, the presidential, the party that lost is the one that's fired up. You think about Doug Jones um, uh, in 2017. Whoever lost is like, oh, this is our Waterloo. Like, we can't lose again, right? And I think it's hard to replicate that. The good news is it won't be for lack of trying, I've already been getting emails and calls and talking to different people about all kind of various efforts going in Georgia. People are going to fight like heck. And so that's why I think the Democrats still have a chance. But the, definitely, I think the fundamentals favor the Republicans there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. By the way, next uh, week of the show, we'll have an activist from uh, Georgia to tell you, to give you an idea, Jason, how hard they're fighting. They're le- they're they're reaching out to political podcasts throughout the country. Literally reaching out to political podcasts throughout the country. Please, can we come on? We want Chicagoans to like donate money, make yeah. phone calls, write. I mean, yeah. so it's it, it's not love for lack of trying.
1: I love it. Hey, we got to go to war. I mean, it's that's what it is. I mean, that's the one thing that I that I that I did. You know, to, to what I said about Trump being a political warrior, it's like we talk about politics in the most extreme terms, right? Like, how many times over the last four years have you talked? Have you heard someone say something like? democracy itself at stake, the future of our civil, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, if that's the case, then you got to act like it. Like you got to put it on the line. If this is truly about the future of our humanity, our country, <laughs> then put it on the line. You know what I mean? You got to be willing to do what it takes or just stop talking like that. And that's fine too. Like people don't, you don't have to think it's that serious, but like, don't be saying, don't be talking like that. And then like chilling, you know, if you're going to nope. talk like that, like do it.
0: Do it. I'm with you. But I just, when you were talking about voters in Georgia, I just, I had this flashback. 2015. I don't know if you were in Chicago in 2015. So okay. the way we do it in Chicago, you know, mayoral races, mm-hmm. uh, nobody wins more than 50%. There's a runoff. Yeah. So I remember uh, <laughs> I was giving a talk to a group somewhere and I I, was, I I mentioned there was a runoff coming up. And this one guy goes, wait a minute, there's another one. I thought we just had this election. And it was like, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, Hey, you know what? Uh, all of well, my lefty friends give me a hard time when I shame voters, but that was a moment of like, yeah, well, you know, it's a runoff and we have another election and you got to. Oh, no, I, I already voted against Rom. anyway. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. Voters, man, you, yeah, you got to win them over. It. All funny. right. Got to ask you about Texas. That's your hometown. You're from Houston, yeah. Texas. And uh, man, man. I always say, just move those hipsters from California to Texas. It's over. We win two Senate seats. The Electoral College has sold up for the Democrats forever. That demographic change is happening so slow, Jason. And this year, once again, Dems fell short in Texas. What can Dems do to win your home
1: state? So... It's funny because I actually was on a call this morning about that, but um, there's a couple of things like one, like in, in the state folks have been, this has been like a long-term progress pro, uh, program that a lot of different entities, a lot of organizers, a lot of organizations have been working on. And there's been, um, you know, people from out the state who've begun to invest as people in the state. One of the things that really like screwed like it up from a perception standpoint was you might not remember, but in 2014, there was something called battleground Texas and it was like these Obama people who were like really fired up after 12 who thought they were going to like turn Texas blue in like two years. Mm-hmm. And because they were Obama people, they raised like a ton of money. Mm-hmm. In fact, the guy, uh, Jeremy bird, who's who sits in Chicago was the guy over it. It was like a huge disaster because 14 was a terrible year. And then that really gave Texas a bad rep- like a bad kind of reputation, like always crying wolf. But the people who were actually working on the ground in the state were always like, no, that's crazy. We're not ready yet. Um, and it's kind of like that now. Like people had models basically predicting that we would end up where we were, where we ended up. It's just that because of the polling and because of this perception that there was going to be an additional Biden wave. People started getting giddy. Right. And, you know, reasonably so, uh, you know, you get some irrational exuberance sometimes. But a lot of the, 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 the people I know who, who did the analysis are looking at the numbers and saying, yeah, we're right on schedule. Uh, we were, you know, Hillary was, was, was plus, I mean, was minus nine. We're going to be minus six, maybe minus five by the time all the, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the vote by mail comes in. We made gains in, in the counties that we thought we were going to make gains in, uh, Harris County, Tarrant County, all uh, the major urban counties. Um, we had some trouble in the valley uh, uh, with Latino voters. Um, the margin definitely got away from us there. There was a lot more Trump support, but that doesn't seem to be a kind of permanent fixture. It seems something unique to kind of Trump and his his charisma and, and the way he was relating to folks. It's not doesn't seem to be a permanent kind of coalition shift. Um, and so we're kind of right where we want to be in Texas. We think, you know, Georgia was minus five uh, in 2016. They had a massive investment in a governor's race in the midterm. And then now Joe Biden wins uh, 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 Georgia. So we need another big investment in Texas in 2022. Uh, We have a governor's race. Uh, If we do a lot of work in that governor's race, continue to shift, dig out some of these more of these votes in these counties. We need to invest in some of these rural areas um, and just cut our margin a little bit. We got some Democratic voters in those in those areas who just don't vote because they're like, what's the point? Mm. And we're like, yeah, but in a statewide context, like your vote's going to matter. Let's cut some of those margins. Let's go and make sure that we reconnect with the Latinos in the valley uh, and make sure that we have a better program there. And we actually have the ability in 2022, we probably have a better chance of holding more of our 20 voters in the 2022 electorate. Than the Republicans do, right? Because a lot of those we, we've seen it. A lot of those Trump low propensity R's in rural areas, they're not coming out for anyone but him, right? And so, um, you know, I'm pretty bullish on what Texas can be. And and the last thing I'll say is, we had a hundred million dollars spent in South Carolina on a Senate race. We had almost a hundred million dollars spent on a race in Kentucky. Neither one of those races people really thought were winnable, right? I mean, they're not. I mean, that wasn't even a thought, right? Iowa, the woman got about. Uh, over $100 million the, who was running for Senate, another $70 million in Maine. Texas is 38 electoral college votes. Yeah. Right, like if, if, you, if we have all that money to put on these statewide races in states that are redder than red for small prizes, um, take that money and put it in a Texas governor's race in 2022 and flip the whole thing, and then you have the governing majorities that will allow you to push the envelope. These razor-thin, blue-wall kind of victories, they don't get you enough in the Senate and the House uh, to really push the agenda. So you get these 38 votes, you know, it changes the landscape. So I, I feel good about it. You know, those of us who are closer to the state, we're not caught up in the hype. Yeah, it would have been great, you know, if something crazy had happened and we had flipped it this time, but we're right on schedule.
0: Yeah. uh and uh, I your points very well take about all that money but then it's the irony of uh AOC's criticism digital that's all digital and I could tell you because I get bombarded hey we can we could flip we could beat uh Mitch McConnell you know yeah. Amy McGrath Jamie Harrison I mean I must have gotten three an hour from him um, yeah. I could beat Lindsey Graham etc and so forth and then of course Susan Collins ever ever since Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, you know, that uh, she's been uh, bringing in the money. uh,
1: It's the gift and the curse, right? So small dollar giving has really unlocked a lot of resources for campaigns, but it's also not necessarily what you would call smart money. Not to say that the smart money is that smart, because I'm not a big fan of Mm -hmm. how donors think about it either, but easily, like small dollars, donors can easily get caught up in a zeitgeist, right? So, right, they were mad at McConnell because he moved Amy Coney Barrett, so the woman in Kentucky gets 50 million. You know, they were mad at Lindsey Graham because he's head of the judiciary. So Jamie Harrison gets 50 million. They weren't thinking, okay, where is this money best used if we're going to control the Senate? So I think we can probably do a better job of that because there were like important people who were trying to get people to give money to those races who probably shouldn't have been doing that. But I think we can solve for that.
0: All right, let's close. Uh, You had something on your mind uh, that I want to give you the opportunity to talk about. Uh, Closing thoughts about King Vaughn.
1: Yeah, man. So I, I just wanted to you know, let your your listeners know. Some of you probably heard there was a, a artist from Chicago named King Vaughn. He's from Parkway Gardens, which is known as O Block, uh, which is uh, off 64th and King Drive. It's where Michelle Obama was born. It was a you know kind of a middle class uh, housing development. Now it's become low income. It, it, you know, it's known for several years as the most dangerous block in Chicago, which obviously is saying something. Um, and so King Vaughn was kind of a contemporary of of Chief Keef and all these kind of earlier iteration of, of what's called Chicago drill rappers. Um, but he was really important uh, to his community. Uh, you know, obviously there's a caricature him as a gangster rapper and a gangster, but um, he did a lot uh, in his community and there's a lot of articles in the sun times you can check out about him, but he did a lot in terms of trying to, you know, spread resources around, help kids out in his community uh, give them hope, uh, and not just kids, but like other young men who are involved in gang activities, try to find other outlets for him. And and, and he was killed, um, in a gun, uh, you know, by, in gun violence in Atlanta, it was some kind of, uh, you know, thing that happened at a club, a fight that went out of control. Uh, and one of his rivals in Chicago, a guy named FBG duck was actually murdered in the city. Uh, that murder that happened in, in gold coast, uh, you know, that was one of his rivals. Um, but um, I, th- I just wanted to say that it's important for us to kind of not just caricature these kind of figures uh, because they mean a lot to a lot of the people that we're always kind of wrapping our brain about how do we reach, you know, the people who we see on the on the crime blotters and the news blotters every weekend. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this violence problem in Chicago. I think people like King Vaughn are folks that we're going to have to kind of change our orientation to. Uh, and really figure out how do we engage and work with folks like that to find a different way uh, in these communities. Um, the type of trauma that these young men go through, the, the amount of friends and family that they lose, it's really difficult. Um, and even to the extent that their life starts to be on an upswing and they start to have more success, it's very difficult for them to get out of um, the kind of the, the culture and the way of thinking and the way of relating to life um, that, frankly, uh, are, are neglect our neglect has created, Um, you know, King Vaughn gave an interview where he talked about, you know, you know, does he want to give back to Chicago? And he said, no, I'm going to give back to my block, but I'm not going to give anything to Chicago because Chicago never gave me a chance. And I just think that's something important for those of us who work in politics or policy uh, to think about um, because this is one of the issues that we're constantly, you know, racking our brain about. Uh, And maybe it's guys like King Vaughn can help us find some of the answers that we need. So rest in peace, King Vaughn. Um, his album was called welcome to O block. It just came out, check it out. Uh, but read the articles in the sun Times because I think he's an important figure for us to learn from moving forward.
0: All right, Jason. Appreciate that. Uh, and many of those issues that he's talking about will be very much alive in the budget debate going on in Chicago on a local level. It's not all just national politics. Uh, yeah. There's also a lot of local politics. Uh, Jason, thank you so much. You did uh, your introduction to the Ben Jarowski show was outstanding, and uh, so we're absolutely going to bring you back. All right.
1: Oh man, that's what I wanted to hear, man. I was nervous, but I appreciate it, man, <laughs> uh, for letting me uh, come on today, man. It was a lot of fun.
0: It is a lot of fun. Jason Lee, the great Jason Lee. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.